0: The following program is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn more about how to claim CME credit for this activity, as well as to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Merck.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Kaylee. Um, And thank you, everybody who's joining us live. And thank you in advance, potentially a while in advance, to those who are listening on the podcast. so yeah, before we begin, and by the way, we've got just a great course and an absolutely incredible set of faculty. So thank you, um, thank. you. All right, so now now we got through all that stuff, we, we get to get started, and I get to introduce the faculty who are, like I said, they're uh, I mean really really amazing. First, um, you, know, you guys can come on come on and um, we can unmute your video. Um, Dr. Maria Carlo is a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where she cares for patients with advanced genital urinary cancers. is truly a world-class expert in prostate cancer genetics and genetic counseling. We are really, really lucky and we're very grateful to have you here uh, with us tonight. Next, Dr. Elizabeth Heath. She's She's a medical oncologist and leads the prostate cancer research team and genital urinary oncology multidisciplinary team at the Carmanos Cancer Institute. She's also the Associate Director for Translational Science. She is just I, just um, down I-94 from me, and we share tons of patients and many research collaborations, and so I get to see firsthand just really how amazing she is in every way. And you know, really can't thank you enough for, for joining us, both of you guys coming to an AUA program. Thank you so much. And last is Dr. Brian Helfand. He's a urologist and director of the Prostate Cancer Program at the John and Carol Walter Center for Urological Health at North Shore University. Dr. Helfan is also director of the Urologic Division in the Personalized Program for Cancer Care at North Shore. Um, Brian's really a, a leader in our field in prostate um, in cancer, in cancer genetics, and really looking forward to getting to talk to you more in this program. Uh, and I don't know if your maybe your video is not working, but we I can't see it. Um, hopefully we can. There you are. Beautiful. Um, and so one one more. Caveat: just before we get started, just we're all colleagues and we know each other well, so I, I'll get to, we decided we'll get to call each other by our, each other's first names to keep this informal. Um, but, you know, incredible amount of respect for everybody here on this panel, so thank you again. Um, all right, so, so now we get to segment one. We have four segments and again, it's already, already been mentioned, but to the audience here tonight, please send in questions. We will try to answer them. We'll um, probably talk about some of them and some of them we can answer directly in the Q&A box. So the first segment of this is on DNA damage repair mutations. And we've, we're gonna have some cases to get us started off. And this is the first one. This is a 50-year-old man found to have a PSA of 125 nanograms per later on routine screening. CT and bone scan revealed multiple bone lesions confirmed on biopsy to be metastatic prostate cancer. And um, see his family history, father died of pancreatic cancer at 55, paternal grandmother died of ovarian cancer and germline and somatic testing were ordered and here you know we have a germline BRCA2 mutation so that kind of frames the discussion somewhat and gives us something to to think about as we talk about some of the deep science behind all this because ultimately the deep science is part of what we want to understand and so first I want to turn to Maria and say you know and we've got a a slide here to help you out with this um how how does DNA repair work in normal cells I I mean help you out I mean this is your slide that you made to up, uh, so that you can use to help ex- make the explanation. Great.
2: Thank you, Todd. Um, so our normal cells um, have DNA damage occurring all the time. Um, some of the damage is caused by uh, obvious factors like carcinogens, radiation, chemotherapeutic agents, UV light, uh, but probably most of the damage is actually caused by random replication errors. Cells have multiple mechanisms by which they repair these normal DNA damage that can occur. Uh, broadly speaking, DNA damage can occur in two ways. So you can a DNA strand, you can break one single strand, and that has a host of proteins that help repair that. Or you can break both strands, the so-called double-stranded break. Um, when we talk about PARP inhibitors, they, so the protein PARP actually works by helping repair single stranded breaks. Um, But double-stranded breaks have two main mechanisms. So one is homologous recombination, and there's a whole sort of proteins, including BRCA1, BRCA2, um, and others that help um, repair double stranded breaks, essentially by using the other strand as a template. And this actually leads to pretty high fidelity um, repair where there's fewer um, errors introduced when you repair that damage. You also have non-homologous end joining in which, like the name implies, you kind of stick both ends together. (laughs) I mean, it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. But essentially, you're sticking both ends together. And this does lead to more errors when you're fixing the um, repair. So broadly speaking, um, this is occurring in our cells all the time.
1: And so, I mean, Maria, we, so just kind of to come back to this patient, right? So this is a patient with a BRCA2 mutation. Do you, you know, we've got when you think about homologous recombination, non-homologous recombination, the, where these patient with different mutations falls. Does that impact you clinically?
2: Yes, it does. So if you have a germline BRCA2 mutation like our patient, um, so BRCA2 is a tumor suppressor gene. So if you have two normal, you know, If you don't have a germline mutation, you have two normal copies that you start out with. And if you have a random mutation in one BRCA2 gene, you have the other allele, and that that kind of takes care of most of it. And and you can, you know, have fine repair with one working gene. Um, But people with germline mutations, like this gentleman, a germline mutation in BRCA2. If a second mutation occurs in the other BRCA2 gene just by chance, they're left with no BRCA2, and that leads to a big problem in repairing double-stranded breaks, and that if um, you have a lot of double-stranded breaks, you know, most cells can die after that, but some cells actually, you know, gain advantages in replication, and that can lead to carcinogenesis, so that's in part why patients with germline BRCA2 mutations are prone to many types of cancers, including prostate, breast, ovarian, and pancreas.
1: Awesome, right, so, and so then I wanted to kind turn to Brian, so and you started to allude to this that, right, so a patient like this has a germline mutation that's in its own is not necessarily enough to cause cancer. And so a patient can start out with that. And then also have different mutation, they can have somatic, just only somatic mutations. Brian, can you talk about the difference between germline and somatic mutations?
3: Sure. So, Again, these are processes that occur in all cells uh, that were kind of just described in healthy cells and in mutated cells. Um, Certainly, uh, this can all be messed up uh, when you have these type of mutations, And, and I think everyone's familiar with BRCA1, two mutations that were just described. But those type of mutations or variations in the DNA can occur within the DNA that you're born with, things that were called germline DNA mutations, and that's the kind of mutation that's from generation to generation um, that is inherited and that's really why we uh, it's really important to start asking family history information to to kind of capture the likelihood Um, of having one of those germline DNA mutations. Alternatively, uh, there are somatic mutations. So these are uh, mutations that occur strictly within tumor cells. And these really occur um, as uh, tumors divide and and, um, start accumulating genetic defects that can lead to mutations in many of these genes. These are not passed on from generation to generation. Right,
1: right. And so, um... And so when you and we're going to really dig into this in a deep way as we go on, but I, I think that you guys have both made this really key point that there's a population of patients that are predisposed to having cancer because they've got a germline mutation, same BRCA2. But that in and of itself doesn't mean that they're going to develop cancer, right? So and, and so as you guys both were alluding to in that scenario, it, it takes that second hit versus a patient who doesn't have any predisposition but still can develop mutations, say in BRCA2, um, that are somatic, not inherited. And that's really important when we talk about family members. And we'll get, we'll get into that. And so, um, I, you know, thank you guys for, for covering some of that, that science. I'm going this advanced advance data. So, segment two, um, and this is where it starts, to I, I think, get really clinically relevant. We think about patient selection and approach to genetic testing. Um, so, these are really, th- you know, thinking about the patients that are in our clinic that we see is so a patient like this a 62 year old african-american male history of de novo mCSPC, castrate sensitive prostate cancer that's metastatic diagnosed three years ago initial presentation of bone mets and psa level of 249 confirmed with a bone biopsy um you can see the past medical history here he's got a family history of prostate cancer was, uh, was on adt and abby for three years and then upon disease progression the bone he was treated with docetaxel Received nine cycles of docetaxel with progression in bone, and also liver mets. And biopsy of liver showed adenocarcinoma without neuroendocrine features. PSA was 450, and then he got germline and somatic testing that were ordered, and sure enough, it showed it was found to have a germline ATM mutation. So, I'm going to bring in Elizabeth here finally. And so this is because this this is really key, right? There was a decision, and I can see in the chat there was a question of like, "What? Well, how do we make this decision to get germline or somatic?" Testing. So, why why did we order germline testing in this patient? What's the justification?
0: Yeah, that's uh, something that I think plagues all of us in our practice. You know, sometimes you're almost caught off guard because you haven't been thinking about it, and oh no, the patient progressed, and now it's an emergency. And then you're like, oh boy, did I do it? Didn't I do it? And of course, if uh, we're all uh, you know charged with our lovely medical records, um, there's never one place to to find it. So. Um, It's a struggle, but why we want to do it is to see if there are other treatment options available for patients. Um, Understanding this pathway has really been a scientific advancement. You know, I think this paper in particular um, by Pritchard et al in New England England Journal in 2016 was was a bit of a game changer. You know, I think everybody sort of thought this was the data, but then you look and you're like, oh my goodness, metastatic patients, 11.8%. You know, have germline DNA repair mutations. And you could see on that pie chart, we're talking about BRCA2, but there's a whole host of others. So it just speaks to um, Maria's explanation of how complicated this process is. And I think it's also important as we're thinking about testing about impact to family. Um, many of us are, are stuck maybe in um, institutions that don't have as many genetic counselors as we would like. I think everybody on the call probably would like to have more um, because it is a very tough situation. Um, Most of the time, there is a way to get uh, answers because we do know the impact of patients. And again, it's all about risk and understanding what that risk is. Um, And a lot of patients that I explain that we're going to do this, they kind of hesitate until you realize, oh my goodness, this, this information might affect my children, my grandchildren. And I think that sort of impact to cascade testing can't be underscored, but we have experts in field um, who are genetic counselors who can really understand that. So for the patient himself, I think it's important because it broadens potential treatment options. For the patient's family, perhaps this is a time to think outside of our individual patient and see how we can make an impact more broadly within the field of prostate cancer. You know, if we can identify folks at risk, we may do a better job.
1: Yeah, God, it was awesome. So tell me this, why why do you think we were caught so off guard by by this paper, by this team, right? I mean, in in retrospect, we think, boy, that seems obvious. And of course the greatest discoveries always seem obvious in retrospect, but you think about the last 20 years uh, of our field.
0: I think we've always kind of put the bucket of genetic testing and BRCA into the breast and ovarian patients. Oh, of course I've asked about the family history you know, wait a minute, what does this have to do with prostate cancer? And I think it was a, a bit of a slow creep. You know, I think caught a lot of people going, I don't understand what's happening. Um, and fortunately we have colleagues in our, in our field who sort of kept championing that message, you know, again and again, like guys, we, we are missing an opportunity, let's continue that. And that's where I think uh, just even nationwide, it's been such a great opportunity for um, these sort of massive registries that can offer free testing and so on. I just think those are, um, you know, real important awareness um, things that we can share with our patients because everyone, you know, is whether you're in the U.S. or outside of the U.S., uh, this is something that is, in, in a way, a local problem uh, because it really is dependent on access and, you know, insurance and all of that. So it, uh, it's just more than testing. Um, For sure. That mindset change, I think, Todd.
3: Yeah, Todd, for sure. Todd, can I also, sorry to jump in, is that, you know, one of the reasons why it was also underappreciated and, and why why this was such a shock is that, you know, these type of mutations we really refer to as rare pathogenic mutations. They're rare in the general population. They're really two to three percent, if you look at all of them, of all patients. So they're they're rare. Um, even if you look at the overall population of prostate cancer uh, patients, we studied this for years and it was still very low. Um, so when we specifically then had the ability and, uh, to look at large cohorts as genetic testing also decreased in, in cost, we found that it, it was much higher. I mean, these are just germline. Uh, again, that's the DNA you're past- on with, but it's another, you know, 10% with somatic mutations as well. So it's uh, um, it's high. Um, and, and I think that that really explains why is that we were able to subset this and appreciate that these rare mutations were really enriched in guys with some of the worst disease we know of.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And so, and, and Elizabeth, you, you know, you mentioned that, so now we understand that this is a, really important and we want to we recommend we discuss genetic testing with so many patients and yet we have this huge shortage of genetic counselors and i know you guys must run into that same as we do because in michigan in general those visits with genetic counselors aren't reimbursable which then further you know creates that problem of not having enough genetic counselors um and so one approach that many of us take right is to have the clinician the oncologist urologist do that pre-test counseling and so i'd love to hear from brian how how do you approach counseling and ordering of a test
3: so you know i think uh, when you start talking to patients um, you have to look um, at where that patient is uh, in the kind of prostate cancer journey um, and I think that that's going to influence when you start talking about uh, the, obtaining this information, et cetera. And certainly, I'm, I'm not going to go through the criteria, uh, but prostate cancer is uh, one of the most lenient um, in terms of insurance coverage uh, for obtaining uh, testing, uh, certainly most men who are newly diagnosed uh, with you know, kind of a, a great group two or three or higher will actually qualify uh, for t- testing. As well as uh, family history uh, data, as well. Having said that, is well, once we uh, identify men who would uh, qualify for genetic testing, then we really want to make sure that we go through the relevant uh, information for them. Um, certainly, we bring up the implications in terms of, you know, kind of legal implications. Uh, there was an a, uh, act um, that was passed uh, back in 2009 known as GINA, and this is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, um, which really prevented any employer from holding this information against uh, a patient um, or or holding it against them. So this has really been the standard. So a lot of patients will come in saying, hey, if I get this information, can this be used against me? The answer is no, Um, and that's protected by law. Having said that in a realistic, um, uh, real-time conversation, I do bring up that insurance companies life insurance uh, period uh, can still use this information and adjust rates based on that. They will also do the same based on family history information. So I do review that with them. I do review uh, what the results uh, would uh, imply, uh, meaning that uh, if we find a pathogenic mutation, that's an obvious uh, type of uh, mutation or variation in a gene that would uh, has been uh, shown to cause a disease prostate cancer and or related cancers. We do review the possibility of finding what's called a variant of unknown significance or VUS. Those uh, results really mean saying, hey, this variation we believe to be likely benign, uh, but it could be uh, that in the future, these uh, variations could be recategorized and be determined pathogenic. So it is something that we would update that patient often uh, we will refer to genetic counseling to talk about uh, pathogenic results. Often, even if you have a VUS, we will also refer to genetic counselors um, as a way to also counsel them in preparation and also review the fact that most VUSs, about 90% of them will ultimately remain or be categorized uh, definitively as benign. Um, yeah. We do, uh, one last thing is, uh, although not necessary at the time of testing, we do review the fact of that if you did have a pathogenic mutation, what is the impact uh, for family members and other type of um, cancers that the patient may be at risk for?
1: That was great. And so I, two things I want to really highlight about that. And so you just encapsulated, you know, in about three minutes, really the critical elements of counseling these patients and it, you know if you've never thought about this before yeah we you know a little more education is probably required before you start doing it but it's doable we can do it but part b is well, you can't just start doing genetic testing and like you like we're ordering a PSA it's different it's fundamentally different you cannot just order like okay we're just going to send it out and we'll let the patient know the result that is that's not good medical care. Is, it's something that we really, really have to guard against. Uh, so it, it's, you know, there are videos for patients to help with counseling, but we do have to provide them this, with this education because once it's been ordered, there's no take backs. And so, so um, thanks, Brian, for that explanation. Um, so that's the germline, I just double advanced, I guess there we go. That's the germline testing, but I want to talk a little about, a little bit more about somatic testing. And there was a question about like in the Q&A about the logistics of somatic testing. When, when do you do it? So Elizabeth, can you, just walk us through briefly how somatic testing works.
0: Sure, and and I think echoing you know what we talked about, they're sort of looking at two different things. Um, and in somatic testing, where this is all a little bit murky, is there's so many ways you can check. So a lot of us say, okay, well, we've kind of learned by tissue, um, and you know, at least in this Robinson paper, it was really like, oh wow, what's the landscape somatically speaking? You know, do we have? And here, the important part is um, that you can use tissue. Um, you can test blood. Uh, a lot of different companies can do that. And of course, there's pluses and minuses with a thousand caveats for all of these. Um, you can also use archival tissue um, if you're really, you know, stuck and there's nothing in the metastatic uh, arena where you can biopsy safely, or you tried and it didn't work. I think we don't often think about checking. The original biopsy or the radical prostatectomy specimens. um, you know, as long as it's not like 25 years ago, um, and it's somewhere within you know a period of time that's reasonable, and that you have access to. And I think here somatically, you know, 23% of the mutations are identified in the DNA repair pathway. So I think this was the other seminal paper for the attendees today. If you had to read a second paper, that sort of puts you in that space where you're wondering how the heck did we get here. These showed all the different pathways that all of a sudden we recognize were either actionable or quite relevant to this, um, to this discussion. Um, in this sense, we don't fuss too much about the impact of family. This really is everything about the patient and what you can do. Of course, many of us have, um, who have access to this use it sometimes to um, improve eligibility for clinical trials for novel agents. So there's a way a lot of ways that one could do it but I think the general sort of recommendation is yes you need to try and test
1: yep and, and so then and then again what so when, when you send the tissue out it and again this is to answer the question it goes for DNA testing right so this is not these are, these are not GRNA gene expression tests this yeah. is looking for looking at the DNA looking for specific mutations look, look, looking for changes um, that would tell us that that gene is non non functional.
0: Yeah, and so I think this is where it does get confusing. So um, not all tests are the same. Not all platforms are the same. Here's uh, my suggestion: is you know ask the person who's um, uh, perhaps the expert in that particular company to make sure are you are you looking at whole exome sequencing? Are you doing whole transcriptome sequencing? Um, are you just doing a limited gene set? Um, those kinds of things. Are, are you Uh, you know, kind of the details, so you have a better understanding, because I think the other, and this is my pitch and plea uh, for all of us in our community, is once you do this, you got to put it in the note. So what happens a lot is you're like, oh, I had some sort of testing. Uh, You know, nothing was that important, and you're not really sure what that means. So if possible, either include it or actually write down, you know, when and what tissue and uh, what platform you use so that we can all inform one another, uh,
1: in, a, in a more timely fashion. That's an awesome suggestion, really good. And, and you were kind enough to to create this slide, kind of comparing germline and somatic testing and to kind of keep us on time, I'm just going to leave this up here and Brian also covered some of this. But I do, before we move to the next section, because we you, you talked about different tissues that we can use. And of course, sometimes maybe the they didn't have a prostatectomy or the prostatectomy tissue isn't available and they've got a bone metastasis and that's really challenging to get viable tissue from and so um w- maria what's what's the deal Carly, with with circulating um, tumor dna can we can we use that as a replacement
2: you can in some cases. So circulating um, tumor DNA is essentially a test where they look at the fraction of um, circulating DNA that's cancer-derived in the blood. So um, they take this DNA. Um, it's also sometimes called cell-free because it's in the plasma, not in one of the lymphocytes or, or white blood cells that's circulating in the blood. Um, So there's various pros and cons to testing ctDNA, you know, if it's still in the guidelines and there's certainly um, a longer track of evidence for, as Elizabeth was mentioning, testing, ideally uh, the metastatic lesion if you have access to that first. Um, but in many um, trials, like the ones that um, uh, tested PARP inhibitors that we're going to talk about later, they use circulating tumor DNA was allowed as a method, as a ways of finding mutation. So some caveats to this is that there needs to be a high, higher disease burden to identify circulating tumor DNA. So somebody with um, a low tumor um Tumor burden, you may find nothing, and it doesn't mean that there's not, you know, it may give you a false negative. Um, There's also false positives. So there's clonal hematopoiesis in the blood. Um, So you may have, for example, a mutation. So clonal hematopoiesis, um, just, you know, a Unfortunately, common process of aging um, is that you acquire mutations in your um, circulating cells, and um, sometimes these form clones, so you get a a, a sometimes quite significant allele fraction in the blood. And this can be mistaken from coming from the tumor, but it's actually coming from the blood. So you wouldn't want to treat somebody um, thinking their tumor has, for example, an ATM mutation when it's really clonal hematopoiesis. Now, that being said, it is more non-invasive, right? It's a blood test. Sometimes you get the results quicker right? because you don't have to do a biopsy or extract DNA. Um, and actually some of these tests are FDA approved for uh, the detection of um, DNA damage repair mutations if you're um, thinking of selecting therapies like or uh, PARP inhibitor for patients.
1: Yeah, awesome. So. Um... Are you, I mean, are you using these tests?
2: Yeah, so so a good, you know, there's different practices even, you know, within the same institution. Uh, yeah. But one uh, way we use them, for example, is if you can't get adequate metastatic yeah. tissue and the prostatectomy was a long time ago, there was no issue. We certainly use these tests for treatment selection.
1: Yeah, okay, that's great. Okay. Oh, thank you so much. That, so um, I'll, I'll keep us moving. That was really a great section team, thank you. Um, so segment three, we're gonna talk about the PARP enzyme. We're gonna talk about targeting DNA repair deficient tumors. The case is a 70 year old. He's a university professor who, um, who has metastatic, cashew-resistant prostate cancer, who underwent treatment with multiple lines of therapy. Tumor was res- um, highly resistant and had a bone biopsy and was to have a BRCA2 mutation and started on Olaparib, a PARP inhibitor um, and had an excellent response so here's here's that is what PSA did, which is pretty remarkable in that setting, but a di- difficulty with fatigue and anemia. And, um, you know, and so so this is where I want to first turn back to Elizabeth and say, okay, well, can we just walk us through a little bit about the PARP enzyme so we understand w- what this is, because we're going to talk about targeting it. Absolutely.
0: And I think we keep seeing, you know, the figure that um, uh, this is a different figure, but uh, Maria really explained this quite well. You know, there's always repair going on because we're such complex human beings there's damage that goes on and you know the way we remain sort of healthy and moving forward is that we can sort of repair ourselves and PARP or polyadenosine diphosphate ribose um you know is that really important protein that can repair damage from a single cell break um so when you have a single strand break um using this base excision repair um you you basically can uh, you know, sort of fix the situation. And what happens with PARP inhibitors is they say sort of stop these PARPs from doing their jobs. And then it sort of, um, you know, in the in our next slide shows sort of what forces it. But it is important, I think, for our audience to know um, the different ways because it well, one, it comes up a lot on board exams in case we have some trainees on there where you're having to sort of recall, you know, what you learned in medical school because who'd have thought we'd be worrying about this in in the GU space and here we are. Um, But kind of putting together sort of like, okay, this part's supposed to help me with my single strand break. You know, when you have uh, a patient with HRD mutation, um, then you're sort of coming up on this concept of uh, synthetic lethality in these BRCA mutated tumors. Um, And these PARP inhibitors really prevent the repair. And again, it's this, you know, the words that are coming out is sort of PARP trapping. So they're just in that, uh, trapping this inactivated part onto these single strand breaks. And then you're like, oh boy, I think this cell's in trouble. So now you have an increase in the double strand break of these replicating cells. So if it was sort of a normal cell, oh, good news, you, know, you have your out and there's your repair by homologous recombination. But um, if you don't, then you're basically in trouble, lots of DNA damage and then we're in trouble. So I think this sort of complexity, it also shows, um, you know, uh, when we're thinking about drug development, Todd, you know, there's other ways to target this because the way to think about single strand breaks or double strand breaks just keeps evolving. Like I'm fascinated with how really well studied this, you know, this area is. So I think there's more uh, considerations for other areas that we could target to continue to try to sort of kill these cells. So,
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to reflect back on like sophomore year college biochemistry. I think that we were, yeah, we were learning. This is what we were learning. And all of a sudden, how how in the world is that so relevant to patient care? And this and so this concept of synthetic lethality that you explained it. You know, I I, again, I I remember think learned that in probably like some random college class, and I think and it doesn't mean much at the time. But this is, um, but it really means a lot. And 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 so that's that's this point that no, normal cells do not respond in the same way to this drug as cancerous cells that are predisposed that have that have a mutation that impairs um, double strand repair and so it it is it's remarkable um, I'm sure no doubt you're absolutely right about um, new ways of targeting this process but also when you think about how cells develop resistance to these therapies right by by all of a sudden you know say turning their brca active again right another mutation that shifts it back in frame and um it just it tells us that that our bodies are amazing and, and we have a lot to learn and a lot of ways we can hopefully do better than even what we're doing currently which which is amazing um I wanted to get get Brian back back in the you know, game here and just talk about side effects of PARP inhibition and really important to, to cover that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think as a urologist, um, and certainly the practice I'm part of really um, refers a lot to medical oncology, but you know, I, I'm still seeing these patients uh, for urologic issues concomitantly, um, and certainly uh, Um, when we look at the trial data, um, it's not uncommon um, that we will see anemia or thrombocytopenia. And so that actually, in some of the studies, has been reported up to 50% of the time. And then I think, you know, when when any uh, drug is being used, I think you can always uh, have the possibility of having what I call more general side effects. And that's anywhere from, you know, kind of GI side effects, nausea, diarrhea, uh, I think uh, fatigue, uh, is also very common. Um, most of these, um, you don't really have to stop the medications. Um, in fact, most of them can kind of uh, be observed if they're tolerable to patients. I do think uh, if they are become intolerable or certainly uh, blood levels uh, become very low, um, sometimes they'll half dose. And, and uh, we have our colleagues on the, the phone here who can probably uh, comment even further. Uh, but it, it's rare that you totally have to stop Uh, the medications um
1: yeah well yeah thanks um and i'd love to hear maria's input on this so right so anemia and fatigue are the most common side effects and i mean are what how do you manage it what do you what do you do you change those do you what what do we do
2: right so for, for this i'm kind of so i I follow the book, so I usually, you know, we were fortunate in that we um, we had some of the studies that uh, led to approval of PARP inhibitors. So I usually go to the protocol of the study and I look at, you know, the what were the guides back then. Um, so if if certain blood levels are within this range, then that's the dose reduction. You can also give holidays and then restart. Um, and you know, these side effects do occur. Sometimes these drugs are given, you know, late, much later on in the course of the disease where the bone marrow is already, you know, seen chemotherapy and others. So, so certainly, and they can, they can occur quickly as well. So you have to keep a close eye, have them come back frequently, especially at the beginning, because, you know, you may be surprised with the degree of anemia or thrombocytopenia.
1: Sure. Okay. Thank, thank you. Um, well, let's, let's shift now to the fourth and final section. And this is, it allows us to talk about patient outcomes, clinical trials, and current clinical guidelines, including a relatively recent AUA advanced pr- pr- uh, prostate cancer guideline, which I, um, I'm a little bit biased, uh, but I think is quite good. Um, and so, uh, so here's the case, which is for this one, a 67-year-old man, history of metastatic prostate cancer diagnosed three years ago, biopsy-proven bone metastases, treatment with ADT and enzalutamide, and he developed MCRPC now with a rising PSA and increasing metastatic burden in the lung and bone Germline and somatic testing were ordered, and notable for a somatic BRCA1 deleterious mutation. Right, so this is, you know, this is definitely a, this is a situation that we come across not infrequently, and we now have a remarkable amount of trial data to help us understand this. And, and so, Maria, can you walk us through some of these key trials and one um, of the key findings, how we interpret them?
2: Right. Sure. So I think there are four key trials, essentially one with each uh, PARP inhibitor that's um, currently FDA approved for different indications, um, that have studied PARP inhibitors in all in the metastatic castration resistance setting. Um, so the um, the Two, the first two trials, profound and Triton two, have actually based on the results, the um, drugs Olaparib and rucaparib are FDA approved for men with CRPC. Profound was is the only phase three trial, so it was actually comparing laparib, um after progression and um, hormonal novel hormonal agents um, compared to physician's choice. Um, and in that trial, you know, it gets a tiny bit complicated in all the trials, essentially, because initially they allow for people with all sorts of mutations, but that they analyze, you know, they sorted out by mutation BRCA1, 2, and ATM versus others. But essentially, in the profound trial, they found an, a significant improvement in progression free survival and later on in overall survival um, in patients treated with allaparib. Um, So uh, that was uh, uh, FDA approved, uh, trying to um, single arm, the rest of the trials are single arm phase two, but they also found um, an improved response rate um, in patients on the PARP inhibitor. or not improved response rate, even though we're comparing technically to anybody, but a significant response rate of 44 percent, for example, for Trident two and a PSA response of 54 um, percent. So, um, rokaborib was up actually the the label was approved for patients in the eff- efficacy population, which was only for BRCA one and two alterations. Other, although other pa- patients with other mutations were included, and there's actually you know a nice analysis later on showing that you know. At least through probably all PARP inhibitors seem to be to work better in patients with certain mutations. BRCA2 clearly um, um, BRCA1 as well, probably not as well as BRCA2, but some others like ATM, you know, really didn't see. Quite enough benefit. So that's important when you're counseling patients, because if you're, can, you know, you're treating a BRCA2 patient, you can quote pretty high levels of response. Um, I certainly am more care- careful counseling, you know, what is the likelihood of response in somebody with another mutation, um, which is much lower um, response. Rate. Again, that was in the primary endpoint of these studies, but post hoc analysis. Right. Shown.
1: So in this clinical scenario, the patient with a BRCA1 mutation, you wouldn't hesitate to recommend a PARP inhibitor.
2: Correct. Yes. We have, you know, phase three and two data showing that in these patients, there is a significant response. The BRCA1 tissue, there's just fewer of them. So if you look at, you know, the study from Pritchard and all, you know, the majority of these patients have BRCA2 and not BRCA1. So, so they're just smaller numbers right. Yeah.
1: Well. But there are a fair number of ATM mutations. So how do you, you know, how do you interpret this data with respect to ATM?
2: Yeah, honestly, I think you know there's pretty compelling data that PARP inhibitors are not that efficacious for. Uh, you know, there are some responses in the trial if you look at the numbers, but I think there's definitely need for better therapies for ATM carriers. And I know there's a lot of ongoing trials with ATR inhibitors and other things to see if we can improve on responses.
1: Yeah, and then um, so you got on the slide right, Propel and Magnitude presented <laughs> at ASCO GU. Yeah. Um,
2: we can talk about yeah. uh, like an hour about this, um, but- Yeah,
1: but okay, how about, you know, 60 seconds, but I'll get nine, I don't know. But yeah, so, what, I mean, <laughs> it's really fascinating. Right. And amazing to have those both presented at the same session.
2: Yes, yeah, so um, fresh off the- So um, uh, PROPEL and MAGNITUDE are two phase three trials that were just presented in the 2022 um, GUAS and genitourinary symposium. Um, Both were testing combination PARP inhibitor plus abiraterone in the first line setting in metastatic castration. Remember, the other trials were after progression of non hormonal treatments. This is Uh, first-line setting. Um, So interestingly, um, Propel, which studied elaparib plus Abiraterone versus Abbey alone, independent of DDR status there appeared to be a, a radiographic progression free survival improvement so it was a positive trial um, in all comers um, and there was a significant portion that didn't have a mutation in one of the DDR um, um, DDR genes. Now magnitudes, Similar design, niraparib, another PARP inhibitor plus abiraterone compared to Abby. Um, here, they also included a cohort of patients with certain mutations in DDR. They also included patients without mutations. The cohort of patients without DDR mutations was stopped early due to futility. So, um, no improvement um, in that group, but there was an improvement in the DDR group. So, you know, a little bit contradictory results. There's a lot of comments of why, you know, could it be tried, not necessarily the drug, but could be trial design that led to that. There's still no overall survival improvement with any of these trials. So, I think. there is still much to learn about why this happened and when, if ever, there is a role for PARP plus in patients yes. with, without DDR mutations.
1: Thanks, that was a great summary. I think we all want to see the published work, right? And, right. Um, we'll, we'll also other we'll
2: trials there. that are still ongoing, which hopefully will also shed light on this.
1: Yeah. Um, so we've got you know a couple minutes left for, for us to talk before we do the post-test questions. but you know I wanted to have a chance to talk about what guidelines exist. Elizabeth, what what you know we walk away and we want to we're seeing our patients and we want to be able to reference some guidelines. what What should we use?
0: Well, I think the good news is there's like anything else in our business, there's a lot of guidelines. Um, I think there are many centers that would default to NCCN. Um, which, you know, does cite both a rib and rib, And of course, the AUA, Advanced Prostate Cancer Guideline, is fabulous, absolutely fabulous, and should be uh, looked at. But I am also cognizant that there are, you know, attendees on this webinar and future podcasts from outside of the U.S. So, you know, where is that? So I think European guidelines are out there as well from ESMO 2020, EAU 2021, and this will continue to evolve. Um You know, we're not just U.S. and European centric as well. I'm sure there are, you know, other guidelines in Asia and other places around the globe. But I think the messaging should be, you won't know whether PARP inhibitors is even part of the story if you don't test. So one is, what are you going to do about testing and when? Um, And that's starting all the way from local high-risk disease to metastatic. And then the type in terms of germline versus somatic. And I think all of that is important, probably as a first discussion before you recognize who's actually a candidate for a PARP inhibitor. Um, But I think the guidelines with regards to a rib and Rucaparib uh, for all of these should be within at least their currently approved setting. So we're not, you know, advocating for something off-label.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, as we think about kind of our turning towards the future, hopefully the you know we will have evidence that this that these drugs help um, help patients earlier in disease and for a longer period of time and brian can i ask you to this give me a little bit on where where are we going what's what's coming i mean I, i
3: think it's like most of the things in urology that we've seen um, is that you know we always want to we start off at one end and, and we want to see where along the spectrum it really has its home in multiple potential places. So I think that there are ongoing trials right now that are moving uh, toward even earlier uh, stages. So certainly metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. There's some neoadjuvant trials that are you know utilizing PARP inhibitors uh, for uh, both. Um, uh mutation carriers and non-carriers you know unfortunately we still don't have these results there we should have them hopefully uh soon or at least some uh, hint at some of their efficacy um, but i but i do think that it's appropriate to start looking at this and seeing where where these really kind of fit in and in what stage
1: yeah awesome and, and I, I cannot wait to start to see some of that data And really really hopeful about it um, well I think we—I don't know—we have a minute. We have a minute um, for a question, which is this um, from Roberto Otoa, In a patient with mCRPC previously treated with abiraterone who has a PALB2 mutation, is olaprev useful, Elizabeth?
0: Well, I think uh, in terms of the the study, the answer is yes, and certainly by indication as well. But it's the same thing that Maria mentioned—you know, just setting expectations. Um, recognizing that uh, the response may not be as robust as one would hope, or if they had a BRCA2, but I certainly would prescribe a uh, LAPRIB for that patient.
1: You would for somebody with a PAL B2 mutation? Yeah. That's a a great question. Okay. Um, I agree with that.
2: And if if you look at the number, PALB2 is rare, so you're not going to get great numbers of what the response rate is, but there were certainly responses in PALB2 carriers. And interestingly, if you do have a PALB2 mutation, there's a high chance it's germline. So so looking at the split, um, and to me, patients who have a germline mutation are, are, you know, I think if you can't do biallelic analysis to me they have like a slightly higher chance of the of the germline mutation driving the cancer as opposed to like a random somatic mutation so so i I also agree
1: wow okay that's um that's great information from both you guys and that's a great question so i um i I think i get to turn it back over to kaylee but before i do let me just say thank you to the three of you. that was really really great Great to see you without on it. Um, your, all of your expertise is amazing, and, and it's so kind of you to share it.